Well, if you want to find your Bibles and turn to the book of Ephesians, uh, if you're new here, my name is Grant Call. I'm one of the pastors here at Fellowship, and we are so delighted to have you with us on this very special Sunday. We are walking through the book of Ephesians. That's one of the things that we do as a church, is we take a book of the Bible, and we walk through it systematically, and we go in-depth, because we really want to understand God's Word, and we are making our way through the book of Ephesians, and we are in Ephesians chapter 5 this morning. I want to give you a little bit about my family. Uh, my kids have always really been into Legos, and maybe you can relate to this, and maybe you still are, because my adult kids are. But like, I remember when they were really young, and they'd get all these little little Lego sets. Uh, one time we gave them like a medieval castle and village. You know, it was so cool. Came with this huge set of plans, you know, and so they'd have to follow the plans. But I mean, there's other things like Millennial Falcon. You can get like famous buildings, like the Empire State Building. In fact, uh, if you want to see Christmas at my house. This year, uh, this is what it looked like. Here are some of my kids, and they got themselves uh, a castle, and there they are, and they are studying the plans, right? And they're going to put this thing together. Now, the plans are really important, okay? Because if you don't follow the plans, but you're building with Legos, it's called freestyling, right? And, you know, you can connect them, and, and, and you can make some stuff, and I want you to know, it might be weird looking, maybe makes sense, but... It'll look nothing like it's supposed to. Like the box and what you create, if you don't follow the plans, not going to match at all, right? But if you want to have the beautiful structure that you saw in the box, why, you have to follow the plans. And I tell you that because that's actually true in life. Do you know that God is the one who has created the universe and he has created every single person in his image God has not only created all things, but he has, after all, given us divine disclosure as to how life is to be lived. He actually goes into great detail about what it means to know God, how to have relationship with God, and how we are to relate to one another. And so as we've been making our way through the book of Ephesians, we have come to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, and this is such a key text because this tells us how we are to live. And it says simply this, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And we spent uh, a week looking at this. To be filled, it's the ongoing process of depending upon and delighting in the living God. It's to ask the Spirit of God to govern and guide our thoughts and our behavior. And being filled with the Spirit isn't something like happens like maybe once a year, like maybe Easter, not once a week, like maybe I'll come to church on Sunday, but it is the ongoing lifestyle. It is the regularly being filled. It could even be like hour by hour, sometimes minute by minute, where you are saying, God, I'm delighting in you, and I'm depending upon you. I want to walk in your ways. I want to walk in your strength. I want to follow your word. To be word-filled is to be spirit-filled, and we saw that from Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. It's exactly parallel. And so he s- describes what does the spirit-filled life look like. Verse 19, it's going to affect your, how you talk with one another. You're to be speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Is that true of you? If you think back to your speech this past week, been super encouraging? Did you encourage anyone? Speak of any spiritual truth? When we just engaged in worship, was your heart in it? If the answer is yes, guess what? You're filled with the Spirit. If you're like, uh, gee, <laughs> hadn't thought of it that way, let me encourage you 
Take God at his word, be filled with the Spirit, delight and depend upon him. And it's not only going to affect how we are speaking and are singing, but we're to, verse 20, always give thanks in all things, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to God, even the Father. All things. It's easy to give thanks for the good things and the things that kind of make sense and that we really like. But we can give thanks in all things, even the great difficulties of life. Like this week, I was in the hospital with one of our members. And this lady was facing things that she had no idea what was coming. We were able to give thanks even there in that hospital room. You know, only the person that is filled with the Spirit, where God is directing their thoughts and their heart, can give thanks in all things. You are Spirit-filled. And it's going to affect how we treat one another. And friends, this is so significant We are just about ready, and we are starting today, our new series on marriage and family from the book of Ephesians, as we systematically are walking through this book. And the only way we will ever fulfill our roles as married people and as single people, as children and as parents, is if we are filled with the Spirit and we are doing what it says in verse 21, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. That we are going to have the necessary humility to actually fulfill God's roles in our lives, and we do so because we have such a high reverence for who? For Christ. Christian life is lived under the kingdom of God where Christ is our king and we are following him and his spirit is filling our lives and our relationships are going to look different. Different than the world, or at least they should be. And so he will go on in verses 22 through 24, we'll see the role of a godly wife. Then beginning in verse 25 through 33, we're going to see the role of a godly husband. Then we're going to spend three verses and we're going to see that if you're a child, you have a role a role in the kingdom of God, and a role in your family. And he actually explains that in verses 1 through 3. And then in verse 4, we're going to start talking about what godly parenting looks like. But the only way that we will ever fulfill God's divine design is if we are submitted to Christ and we are aligning ourselves, we will subject ourselves one to another in the fear of Christ. But what is God's blueprint for marriage? And what about singles? How does this all work together? Well, that's what we want to do. We want to lay the foundation from the very beginning. And so for our remaining time together, we're going to be in the book of Matthew. So if you want to just flip over there to Matthew chapter 19, beginning in verse 1, I want you and I to really wrestle with this question. What do couples and singles need to know in order to live out God's divine design in our relationships. If you do not know what Jesus presents in this text, you're probably freestyling in life. And it probably isn't working out, probably not the way you hope for, and it's probably a far cry from how God has designed it. So let's take a look at the foundation that God has given us, the blueprints and the plans for God's divine design for relationships. And beginning in chapter 19, we'll pick it up in verse 1. I want to, first of all, then just show you the sanctity of marriage. Now, let's take a look. Chapter 19, verse 1, it says, When Jesus had finished these words, 
He departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. So let me just give you a little bit of context, since all of a sudden we just jumped into the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus has been ministering up in the north in Galilee, Sea of Galilee. It's the area in which he lived and actually did most of his ministry. But he's making his final trek to Jerusalem, a trek that will culminate with his death on a cross and then rising again three days later. And at this time, Jesus is incredibly popular with the masses. And people are very curious because Jesus is doing the things that only God could do. Miracles, healing, giving sight to the blind, those that are lame, happy, having them healed. People that can't hear, all of a sudden, Jesus can heal them and they can hear. He's even on three different occasions raised someone from the dead. And people are saying, this must be the Messiah, the son of David, they're even calling out sometimes that he is the son of David. And although there are a lot of people that are very interested and certainly curious about Jesus, there are some folks that are incredibly opposed to him. The Pharisees, the scribes, the Jewish leadership. Because Jesus is taking their place. They don't want this Jesus, who doesn't seem to align with them, to be the Messiah. They don't want people following after Jesus and calling him the Christ. And so they are doing everything they can to capture Jesus, to bring an end to him. And it takes place here. This is, like they think, the golden opportunity. Perhaps you missed it, but notice what's taking place here. Jesus is coming down, and he came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And you're like, Okay, why is that such a big deal? That's a huge deal. The Pharisees and the scribes, the Jewish leadership, think that Jesus has made a tactical error and they've got him. This is a trap in which Jesus could never escape. Because the land on the other side of the Jordan, so east of Judea, is the land of Perea. It is dominated and ruled by a very wicked man, a man by the name of Herod Antipas. Remember him? Let me give you a little background on Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas, very self-seeking guy, and boy, it's, life is all about him. And what he wants, he gets. And he discovered that he really liked his brother's wife. And he seduced her, took her, and married her. And along comes on the scene a guy who is afraid of no one but God. His name is John the Baptist. He is a straight shooter, eats bugs, wears kind of some rough clothing, and he doesn't care what people think about him. He is very secure in his own skin, in his own identity in Christ, and his role in what God would have him to do, to be a truth teller. And when it comes to Herod Antipas, he just says, listen, what you've done, it's wrong. It's a sin. You have missed the mark. You ought to repent. Your heart is not right with God. I want you to know that did not sit well with Herod Antipas. He had him incarcerated, and yet he used to enjoy, like, kind of hearing this guy. This guy is intelligent. This guy has the inside track. He knows truth, and he's not afraid, and he's certainly not even afraid of me. But then you remember there was a birthday party for Herod Antipas's stepdaughter, and and this girl, she does a dance, perhaps like he hadn't seen before, and everybody was just enamored by this, this, you know, likely older teenage girl, and Herod, you know, with all his friends around, he said, hey, listen, you know what? I'll, I'll tell you what, man, that was just awesome. I'll give you up to half my kingdom. You just ask whatever you want, sweetie. She doesn't know what to do, so she turns and runs to mama. 
And she goes, what, do you, what should I ask for? He's saying, like, half the kingdom. She goes, this is what you asked for. You asked for the head of John the Baptist. I hate him. I hate what he has to say. I hate that he's this representative from God. I want him done. You asked for John the Baptist's head on a platter. And so she leaves Mama, and she goes back to Herod, and she says, you know what I want? I want the head of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist lost his head. He was executed that very hour. And guess where Jesus is now? He's in the area ruled by Herod Antipas. And that's why the Pharisees and scribes think, we got him. How did this happen? How did Jesus decide to go on the other side of the Jordan? We'll just ask him something very similar, and we'll have him completely at odds with Herod Antipas. And most certainly, Herod Antipas has his soldiers watching, likely advisors that are keeping a close eye. I mean, all of a sudden, all these people are, and Jesus, have entered in their territory, and they got him. In fact, they ask him, and here you see in verse 3, some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him. That word there has the idea to test, and in this case, context shows us with an evil intent, testing him, asking, hey, Jesus... By the way, (laughs) is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Like Herod Antipas, is it lawful? And so they think they've got him. They think he's nailed. These guys are like dogs that have just kind of like surrounded something to attack. Now, when they ask this question about is it lawful to divorce his wife for any reason, um, let me give you some context on this. There is a verse in the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, that had lots of people talking, and it was kind of the touchpoint verse for the whole controversy that existed. It simply says this, Deuteronomy 24, 1, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts her in hand, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, okay? And so here you have Moses In the law, God has him start trying to regulate this widespread, rampant divorce. And he's like, no way, you've got, you cannot be mistreating these women. You've got to actually even have a certificate. It has to be an indecency. And so that's the word indecency. Why that became the touch point of controversy. What did that word mean? So the Jewish people, what they did is, uh, they had rabbis, the word means teacher, and some of them were very esteemed, and they would kind, and like, the more esteemed you were, people would kind of align in camps, and there were two major camps. There was the camp of Rabbi Hillel. In fact, he had died just 20 years before Jesus starting his public ministry. And Rabbi Hillel, man, he knew the winds of the culture, and he knew exactly how to interpret things. So he was super progressive. And he's like, oh, you know that word indecency? Well, that means, for pretty much any reason at all. And let me give you some of the reasons that he stated. These, if, the, if a woman should you know, let her hair down in public or talk to another man or if she burnt the bread or put too much salt on the food, you could divorce her. That's indecency. Or here's one, and now this is pretty serious. If, if she should speak will, ill of the mother-in-law, you could divorce her. And you could see why that's serious, right? Uh, another one, uh, you know, if she was just, just infertile, you just like, oh, that's all right. I'm going to divorce her. That's an indecency. Another guy in that camp is a rabbi, Rabbi Akaba, and he said, you know, if a guy should find someone more fair than his current wife, that's an indecency, you know? We all understand. What do we call it here in the States? No-fault divorce. Just whatever, right? 
So I want you to know that was wildly popular. People are like, I like that. Do whatever I want. That's that, that's fine, and I can do that, and do that kind of as as a in, in God's kingdom or supposedly, that works for me. On the other hand, there was a guy, Rabbi, Rabbi Shammai, and he was not as popular. Guess why? He really actually wanted to understand what that word indecency meant, and he said, you know, the only thing I'm pretty certain is what God's driving at there would be like adultery. And of course, people are like, you've got to be kidding me. Well, I'm, they, that's just not going to work. And so they think they have Jesus. And so look at Jesus. He says, you guys, you want to talk about divorce? I, I want you to understand marriage. I want you to understand the sanctity of marriage. And look what Jesus said, verse 4. And he answered and said, Have you not read? Have you not read? You see, they would always appeal to their favorite rabbi, the guy that would tell them what they wanted to hear. But I want you to know that the true authority in life is God and his word. And he takes them to the word. He takes them to the beginning, the beginning of the Bible. He takes them to God himself, for he is. And he says, have you not read? You know, if you're all about kind of reinterpreting the Bible for you to accommodate whatever you want and whatever position you want, you kind of align, you'll align yourself with false teachers. You'll align yourself with people that will tell you what you want to hear and the direction you want to go. And they may be religious, and they may have degrees, but they're always there to drive an agenda. And they are going to go directly uh, oppose God and his word. And that's why Jesus says, guys, have you not read that, verse 4, he who created them from the beginning made them male and female. Do you need to know that God is the one who's created all people in his image, and he's made you either male or female? Not for you to like, well, I think I'm going to be something else. No, God is the one who's made you either male or female. I want you to know that marriage is given by God. It is his institution. In fact, take a look. Keep reading here. And he says, verse 5, and he said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, here's something interesting. Did Adam or Eve have parents? No. See, it's actually projecting into the future. And the strongest human relationship isn't the parent-child relationship, it's the husband-wife relationship. And who has created marriage? Take a look at the text. It's for this reason, verse 5, quoting right out of here, Genesis 2.24, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to the wife, and the two shall become one flesh. It is this unity And it's far more than physical. It represents a unity, spiritual, emotional, relational, philosophical. They are going together in the same direction. And their coming together is just merely a representation of the unity they have as a couple. It is God who is the one who is fashioned to design marriage. In fact, he goes on to say, verse 6, so they no longer are two but one flesh, what therefore, take a look at this, God has joined together, let no man separate Who puts married people together? God does. The marriage institution is not given just to believers. It was given to the human race even before the fall. The fall and the sinfulness and and 
people deciding, I'm going to live apart from God and do my own program. That's why we got all the chaos. But God has set up something beautiful, and it is belongs to him. What God has joined together, let no one separate. And so we see here that God is creating this oneness. It's why, like it says in Malachi 2.16, that God hates divorce. God doesn't hate divorced people. God hates divorce because it is a destruction of something that he has created, and it's by his divine design, this coming together. And I want you to know that what God intends is that for all of us to experience intimacy, and this goes far beyond something physical, you might think of like intimacy is this, into me you see. Into me, you see. It's a oneness. It's a peace. It's a confidence. We all long for intimacy. It is why God actually sent his son Jesus to this earth so that he would pay the penalty for our sin so that through his resurrection, we can have a oneness with God. We can experience him and know him to sense his pleasure. We're not God, but we experience relationship with him forever. And when it comes, the two shall be one, it's that God will have us experience intimacy, to be known, oneness. And I want you to know that anytime you see a happy marriage, that is to be celebrated, and you need to know there is a lot of work that went into that. Because I want you to know there are all sorts of challenges and difficulties financial, relational, problems. There are going to be so many times where you're going to have to forgive one another. Because, I mean, when, when you get close to one another, there are going to be times you're going to rub each other the wrong way. There is going to be conflict. There are going to be serious challenges that you're going to have to walk through. I mean, devastating ones. Things that really catch you by surprise and certainly not convenient. But it is God who is at work. It is he who has established this covenant relationship. And he brings about this oneness. And I want you to know that these verses here, 19, 4 through 6, like, I wear them. Like, what? Yeah. Because when I got married to Karina, she gave me this ring. And engraved in the inside of that ring, and this ring, you see it? Is Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 through 6. Why? As a reminder, this is all about God. You see, marriage isn't about your happiness so much is it about holiness, God's holiness, you and I becoming holy. Marriage, your marriage, is really not even about you. It's about God putting his character on display through the relationship that he created. But I want you to know that if you're married, it's going to come under attack, right? I mean, it's coming under attack under our culture. We're so smart, we can redefine it. I want you to know that there's everything that can be done to pull apart marriages. It's interesting, in the uh, northern Cascades, like in the state of Washington, there's this forest there, and it has these massive trees. And these trees, I mean, some of them are, are like 700 years old, okay? And they put like signs by them, like, this tree is super old, Right? You know, in most forests, uh, a tree, the forest burns down like every, you know, 60 to 70 years uh, by lightning strikes, there's fires. It's just kind of that natural process. So, I mean, you want to think about this. You either harvest the timber and actually use it, or you watch it burn in a huge fire, okay? Take your pick, but, you know, you might want to consider that, you know? But in the Northern Cascades, these trees, like, they seem to keep going on for hundreds and hundreds of years. Why is that? Because they are always receiving water, 
It's just always raining, right? It might be a little dreary, but I want you to know those conditions allow those trees to thrive. And so when lightning strikes, guess what? It's just way too damp to burn anything down. And like you're like, why are you telling me about trees? Because I want you to know that your marriage is either like a tinderbox ready to explode, or it's going to be like this cascade forest. And it all depends on how much the water of God's grace you're receiving. How much you're being filled with the Spirit. You're dependent and delighting upon God. Because when we're filled with God's Spirit and we enjoy His presence and we make worship a priority and God is the one who we're seeking and Christ is the King of our life and He is indeed Lord, guess what? We live differently. We have His presence, His power, His peace, and His hope. And friends, I want you to know that as a church, we are absolutely committed to marriages and seeing marriages not just survive, but thrive. And so... We even have like a marriage class. We have a class. It's just got started. Wednesday nights, 6.30. Come on, let's go. Because we're here to help you. And as a church, we're always looking to cultivate growth and health in Christ. But you know, um, the only way that we will ever experience thriving marriages is if we will be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And we're going to talk about in these upcoming weeks of what that looks like. Well, remember though, these guys were here to trap Jesus. And at this point, Jesus is totally, totally flipped the table. And these Pharisees and scribes are like, this is not working the way we thought. Now, though, I want you to see the seriousness of divorce. These guys, they may have even anticipated this, but look at this. They're like, whoa, Jesus, wait, time out. Verse 7, they said to him, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away. Yeah, how about that, Jesus? Remember that Deuteronomy 24.1? Moses, you know, Moses commanded us to divorce our wives. We're just doing what the Bible says, right? That's, and they think they've got him. They think like, you know, Jesus, it's, it's right there. Look at this. You, you got to think, like, it was just completely silent. You know, this massive crowd that is watching. And these Pharisees and scribes inherit Antipas' land. And they, they think they've got him. Listen to what Jesus has to say. And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. Let me tell you the real reason what's going on. It is because of the hardness of your heart. You're callous. You're selfish. It's all about you. You're not bending down. You don't have the humility before God or the humility before your spouse. And it's because of your hard heart. You're making these horrible decisions. But he said, but it is not that way from the beginning. God had established something beautiful and you chose to destroy it. Now, when he says this, I want you to know, like, this has completely got their attention. When he talks about them having a hard heart. Now, he goes on uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, it talks about the fact that you could divorce your wife um, for the case of abandonment, but as Jesus says here, look what he says. He says, from the beginning, it's not been that way. It's because of the hardness of your heart. And I want you to notice, they said Moses commanded. Do you see that, verse 7? But Jesus says, "Uh uh-uh, 
You see how you twisted that? Did he command? No. You're commanding. He says, Moses permitted you to divorce your wife, but from the beginning it has not been this way. And I say to you, verse 9, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality, he actually tells him what that indecency is, and marries another woman, commits adultery. He says the only legitimate reason for you to divorce your wife is because of immorality, for porneia. And this is a word that covers a wide spectrum of sexual sin. He says that would be the only basis by which you could divorce your wife. And so he tells them that in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he talks about the fact that if you've been abandoned, that would be the only other reason, okay? But from the beginning, it has not been this way. And so if you're thinking like, oh my goodness, you know, here's this, here's divorce, and maybe you are at the very end, you think, of your marriage. I want you to know I've been pastoring for a while, and I've been involved in a lot of different relationships. I have seen people within a week of having their divorce finalized, seeing God turn it around. And I know that there's some people that have gone through some horrendous pain. I mean, the whole subject just, I mean, it'll, it'll, it'll just unravel you when you consider it. And you're like, my spouse has hurt me so greatly. They did this, this, and this. <laughs> what am I supposed to do? Let me give you one word for you to consider. Forgiveness. Do you know what happened right prior to this engagement with Pharisees and the scribes here? You can look at it, Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. Jesus speaks on the subject of forgiveness. To, in God's power, release someone from a debt, a debt that they even owe you. And when you realize how greatly God has forgiven us and the power of the gospel, then we realize that it's in his strength we can forgive others. And so Jesus just lays it out there, and he talks about just the seriousness of divorce. But now Jesus is going to talk about the significance of being single. The disciples are like, oh my, look at verse 10. The disciples said to him, they come to Jesus privately, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom... It has been given. And then he makes this statement. For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb. And there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. And there were also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let them accept it. And so Jesus says, hey, listen, not everybody can accept this. Not everybody can be single. He says, there are some that have never married because that is a condition uh, of a condition that they've had since birth. There are some, like that we do in royal courts, where certain men and advisors of the king would be castrated because they were working with the king's harem, okay? It's terrible, it's wrong, but it's what happened, and Jesus references it. But there are some, he uses now in a figurative sense, that have set themselves apart as single, and they have done so, I don't want you to miss this, for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. They are single by God's divine design, and they have given themselves fully to serving God. I want you to know that being single 
is so greatly valued by God. And I want you to know that a single person has the potential of representing the all-sufficiency of Jesus in every aspect of their life. That is what he's highlighting here. There are some that are single for the sake of the kingdom of, ha- of, of God. I want you to know it is possible to be single and completely satisfied because of Jesus. It's the presence of Jesus that awakens us to the significance of being single. You know, in the United States right now, there are about 40% of adults are single. Did you know that? I mean, think of it. For the first two decades in your life, you're probably single, right? Uh, you know, um, if you get married, do you know that either you or your spouse is going to pass away first? And, or, you know, God forbid, that you end up divorced. Either way, you end up single. Do you know in the kingdom of heaven, when we pass from this life, do you know that we're all going to be single? Like Jesus said, we're going to be like the angels, all satisfied in Christ. And so this tells us that singles have such a significant role in the kingdom of heaven. And I want you to know that as a church, we value singles. Because just think of like the Legos, you know, we all need one another. And think, you know, I've been thinking a lot about this because I got a letter this past week from a single in our church. And there was kind of a lot of pain and emotion that went into that. Because it, at times, it can be in a church, it's like, if I'm single, I don't seem to connect. I don't seem to have a place. It seems like there's just lots of families and, and lots of couples. I want you to know, we're all in the kingdom of God and we need one another. That means that we have to intentionally be building relationships with one another. We need to value one another. We need to expand the borders of our heart. You've got to get past just like, I'm only going to talk to the people I know and the people I'm comfortable with or that are like me. We realize that God is the one who brings people into his kingdom. Every tribe, tongue, and nation, single, divorced, married, but we need one another. And so I'm going to challenge you to develop a Lego mentality. And you're like, what? Yeah, Lego. Going to be a simple little acronym right here. Look to engage in God-given opportunities. Look to engage in God-given opportunities. When you see people, when you see opportunity, do you look to engage them? I mean, think of if you're single, are you, are you looking to engage God-given opportunities? Or are you going to be overwhelmed by emotion like, oh, I'm just not needed or wanted? If you're married, do you actually engage singles? Do you invite them to sit with you, to be a part of your life? Do you invite them to groups? Friends, we have to get beyond just it's about me and what I want to about. It's about Christ the Lord and being a part of his kingdom and to be filled with the Spirit and to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Friends, I want you to see that Jesus is driving home the significance of being single. And it shouldn't surprise you that there are a lot of single people that have very significant ministries. I mean, you think of him from Jesus to Paul to Luke, John the Baptist. But you think of people, men and women, they've had great impact for the kingdom. Why? Because they found their all-sufficiency in Christ. And they connected well with the body of Christ because we're all in this together. And by the time we get to this point in the message, we're like, whoa, you know what? (laughs) We've all completely failed, right? We've we've failed in our marriages. We failed to treat people well. 
We may have multiple divorces, and we may have even been the cause of those things. We may be single, and we're just not really focused on, on God or even connecting, and we're, we've missed it. And so that's why the gospel is so precious and so beautiful. Let me give you some verses to encourage you. Like 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You want to be cleansed? Confess it to God. Or here's one, Hebrews 8, 12. It says, for in the new covenant, God says this, for I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Do you know that God doesn't see you in your sin? God sees you united with Christ. God never sees us in our sin. He sees us united to the Savior. He sees us in the Son. And we need to take him at his word. And when we do, we realize, wow, I'm loved, I'm forgiven. Stop recalling all the negative, ill, sinful stuff you did. See yourself as you really are in Christ, and I want you to know it'll be so very freeing. It'll put a joy in your heart and a smile on your face. And let me give you one other verse. This is so good. Hebrews 10, 22. Let us draw with an ear with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Have you done some things you're really not that proud of? You got a conscience that's like, whoa. Yeah, I definitely identified evil in my life. Do you need your bodies washed with pure water? Then let us go to the fount of grace. That's why we cherish the cross. That's why we love Jesus, because he cleanses us from the inside out, and we are new creatures in Christ. So friends, remember this. If we are going to experience the joy of knowing Jesus and fulfill our roles and experience all that he has, if we are going to send the world the picture of the masterpiece that God is creating, that means that we all need to engage. We all need to develop the Lego mentality, and that is to look to engage in God-given opportunities. Because as we do this, married people, single people, as we come together united in Christ— why, it's God who's creating the masterpiece, and we are following the divine design to his glory, and it is beautiful in his sight. You see, through Christ alone, we can make it together. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for the power of your word. God, you just open up our lives with the truth of your word. You help us to see not only our sin, but the loveliness of the Savior who has cleansed us and forgiven us and made us new. And you're putting us all together in this masterpiece. Help us to connect well and value each other. And Lord, for someone who is here today who has never truly trusted you, would they just right now turn from their sin and the wreckage in their life and trust in Jesus Christ and Christ alone? May they know his cleansing and his hope and his forgiveness. God, we love you because you have first loved us, and we celebrate your grace in Jesus' name. Amen.